You're listening to the Teak Nation Podcast, where we strive to educate, inspire, and entertain you with tips and lessons from frauders and friends of TKE. It'd be cool if we could get like an orchestra version of the intro song, like switch up, you know, how like sometimes like if, if it's always a trumpet, they'll, you know, like they'll do it on a piano or violin or something. Yeah. Maybe look into it. Look into it. I was thinking last night about putting words on it going, it's a Teak Nation podcast. Or we could get, you know, an acapella group who does it, you know, like Pitch Perfect, like the movie Pitch Perfect. There's a Teak acapella group out there somewhere. Let's scour the nation and find them. All right. Welcome, 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 loyal listeners. It is Monday, April 5th, our first podcast in April. And a happy belated Easter to you, Donnie, and to all of our friends out there. Did you enjoy your Easter? Did the kids get their Easter baskets? Did the Easter Bunny come to your house? The Easter Bunny did make a visit. Uh, I will say after the way that uh, our children acted in church, Mm. I think the Easter Bunny probably could have hopped on by. But uh, that's that's for another podcast, another conversation. The Easter Bunny regretted his decision to visit the house before church. I regretted the Easter Bunny's decision to visit the the house before church. Yes. Do you uh, are you a, are you a hide the Easter baskets and the eggs, or are they just like right there for the whole world to see when the the kids wake up? Half and half. The the, the baskets are there. Okay. Eggs are hid. Yeah, that that's, that's kind of that's that's how I grew up too. Is you don't have to work for the basket, but the eggs you gotta you gotta put in a little effort for. That's right. Got to track down those eggs. What what are you putting the eggs? You, candy, money, you change guy. No, we're more uh, we're more in the chocolates. A lot of chocolates. You know, when you're when you're married to a dentist. I was wondering you, how that how yeah. that worked out. Jelly beans don't make an appearance. Um, let's see what else. That gummy worms, those types. No, you can't have those. So that's that's out. Hard candies are out. So it's it's you know it's a really tough childhood just having eat chocolate. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, that that's right. Uh, I was thinking yesterday because this is what you think about on Easter. Um, at least what I think about on Easter, there's such a significant gap for me between how much I like regular jelly beans, which is very, very little, and how much I like Starburst jelly beans, which are like one of my favorite candies out there. And it's just, you usually don't see, you usually don't see like, here's a, here's a product that you despise, but then here's just a slight twist on that product and now it just shoots to the, the top of your list. I, I, it's just an interesting little mishmash there of, of jelly bean thoughts. You know, we talk about a lot of positives in being a member of the fraternity. And, and one of the things that we highlight all the time is why it's critical to engage with people who have different interests and different thought processes, right. and different, different leanings. And so one of the things that I count myself lucky or blessed for is that I have a friendship with you because I get to learn about all sorts of candies and chocolates and, and frankly, a lot of food items that I never, I never walked down those paths because you walked down them for me. So I appreciate well, it. Do you like Starburst? Not particularly. All right. Well, then you won't care for Starburst jelly beans. It's a short conversation. Anyone, uh, if, if there's anyone listening who, who's had the Starburst jelly beans, they know exactly what I'm talking about. I guarantee that at least like four people when I said that were like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, regular jelly beans are just little, especially 
black jelly beans, black jelly beans and black licorice. You know me, I, I will eat almost anything. And not only will I eat almost anything, I, there are very few foods that I truly disdain, one of which is olives, all sorts of olives, black olives, green olives, Kalamata olives. Another one is black licorice, black jelly beans. I just have never gotten the appeal. I think that they are absolutely disgusting. Not a fan of white jelly beans either. I mean, I'm not a big jelly bean guy to start with, but white jelly beans, you seem like you want to get the different flavors of the jelly beans and outside of the white and black ones even some of the grayish clearish ones mm. not good either well then you got jelly bellies which is a whole different genre i don't really associate jelly bellies with easter those are just kind of an anytime candy good to know well that's not what i expected to be uh leading with here but that's where we went that's the beauty of the teak nation podcast you never know where it'll take you. Any any other fun Easter traditions for for you and your family that you all enjoyed yesterday? There's typically a, a big spread, a big Easter meal. You could guess with COVID that's looked a little different, but we were able to actually do an outdoor, you know, there's a spread on a picnic table mm-hmm. and everybody frequents it at some point to stop by and grab, grab their own little piece. So we made it work. It was good to see some people I haven't seen in about a year. So that was, uh, that was nice. You guys eat ham, ham on Easter? No, ham, ham is more of a Christmas deal. Yeah. Interesting. We're, we're, we're ham on Easter. And I gotta say, I, I enjoy a good ham. It's, uh, it's one of those foods that you don't eat often outside of holidays. It's pretty good. It needs to be prepared. Well, I think ham is one of those pieces that if it gets overcooked, it really, yeah. Get away from you. Ham and turkey. Turkey is hard to cook, and and I've had some bad turkeys from some people that I really love, and it it, it makes it makes it difficult to reconcile those two things. But yeah, it's got got to be sweet. I love the the sweet ham, little brown sugar glaze. Uh, my ham yes ham yesterday was good. It was good. It was beautiful outside. We spent pretty much all day outdoors yesterday. I think I got a, almost got a little bit of sun on my face. You probably, you can't see it, nor can anyone listening, but I did. I started to get, feel a little burnt on my forehead. So that was nice. That was nice feeling the sun's rays beam down on my, my arms and my face for once. Yeah, it's starting to warm up, which can only mean one thing. It's master's week, my man. It is it master's is. week. You cannot be in a bad mood this week because it's master's week. Well, let's, let's back up 24 hours. Jordan Spieth is back, and when you combine that with the Masters, I, I mean, did you cry? Any, did you cry yesterday? Did you cry upon I your man? I didn't. Jordan Spieth getting a victory. I didn't cry, but I did. You know, I took some time to reflect on the last four, three and a half years, and all that we've been through, and it was uh, it was a good day. It was a day of happiness and joy. So there were there were no tears shed, but. Um, but yeah, anytime, you know, anytime you get one of these big masters where tiger's back, quote unquote, like he gets hurt or he breaks both of his legs in a car accident and then he returns to the masters. Obviously those are at the top of the list in terms of anticipation, but when you have speed playing the way he's playing, you have uh, Brooks Kepka who just announced yesterday that he, after like three weeks of he had knee surgery like three or four weeks ago and now he's playing and you got some of the best players in the world playing at a top of their game it's gonna be a good one I hope the weather holds up down there and it's you know we get the sunny uh the sunny days down on the uh down in Augusta National the azaleas are in full bloom and I'm I'm really really looking forward to it. we don't talk a, a lot about golf on this podcast because I realize it's a it's a niche that 
doesn't apply to a lot of people, but it's the masters, you know, it's, it's like, you just, even if you don't watch football all season, you might tune into the super bowl for, for exactly. 20 minutes. Check, you right. gotta check the masters out. When, when our good friend Zach comes on, that's going to be a great litmus test. Does Zach watch the masters at any point? Because that, that can really tell you, are they even pulling a guy like Zach? I bet, I bet he does not. I would, I would assume he doesn't. Um, well, just like, just like the Turkey, this could hinder he and I's relationship. So it's good to, it's good to put a marker down. Yeah. Well, that's, it's a good thing that, uh, you know, you haven't seen him in person in a year and it's probably going to be another, another decent chunk of time before you do. Let me ask this question for the, for the listeners out there over under, hmm, let's say 125 texts you and I will send to each other during the masters. So that's Thursday through Sunday, Thursday through Sunday, 125. That's 31.25 texts per day over over yeah yeah i'm yeah i'm excited it's gonna be uh it's gonna be a lot of fun speaks playing well obviously dustin johnson defending champion is the betting favorite which i'm i'm not surprised although i'm a little surprised speeth is now the second betting favorite second uh second best odds uh, I'm a little surprised he didn't vault there into first, but going into this week, I think he was sixth or seventh on the list. And Justin Thomas just won the players. Bryson is Bryson, so it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a wild ride. You got some of these young guns. Now I'm just throwing out names that no one's ever heard of: Colin Morikawa, Victor Hovland, some of these younger guys who are are gonna be playing there, looking to to make a mark. And then no Tiger, which is obviously very sad, disappointing. But maybe we'll get him back for next year. Well, you didn't bring up the the man going for the Grand Slam this week, which is Rory. Rory, all over the map. I forget about Rory sometimes. That's the when, that's when the Rory can get you. The moment you forget about him. Well, here he comes. Maybe maybe I'll throw a little cash down on him. We'll see what happens. Did you put any cash on your number one fan? Did you put any cash on Jordan Spieth yesterday? I did not. Uh, I was actually just texting with a colleague, Joseph Crisuanos about that um he just assumed that i did which is fair but no his uh his odds going into the tournament were just a little too high i like to go down the whistle and and pick guys like two weeks ago uh i did put put some money on billy horschel to win the wgc match play and that paid out pretty nicely because he was he was longer odds so the formula works once a year or so but no, I, I did not place any money on Jordan to win. I, I had some money sprinkled elsewhere. Obviously, now I regret that because it doesn't matter how long the odds are. If you pick the winner, you're gonna you're gonna make money. But I got to put in some time and think about how I want to approach this week. I am in a, a separate pool, which you got to pick eight golfers, and it's based on their money, the the payouts, and whoever has the most, you know, whoever has the highest total of dollars won of their golfers. But you can't pick the top top 10 players in the world. So Spieth is eligible, um, you know, just to kind of even the playing field and make you go a little deeper than, oh, you know, I want Dustin Johnson and Justin Thomas and Rory McIlroy on my team. So, so I got to figure out who I want to, who I want to roll with in that one, but uh, it's, it's all part of the fun of, of master's week. That seems like a lot of rules. No, there's, there's, there's just, there's just one rule. You can't pick any of the top 10 guys in the world. Right, but unlike for, for those novices who don't know anything about the Masters, the Masters typically has the top 10 people in the world or typically the people who right. are contending versus a normal major, maybe one or two or three guys in the top 10 even make the cut. A lot of good players will miss the cut. The Masters is a very, very small field to start with. I think it's 87 this year. Right. So 
you're talking about a large percentage of the field right there in the top 10. And obviously those players are going to have a much better chance than the guys 60 to 87, which about 15 of them are former Masters champions who are 60 plus, 70 plus. And, and out of all respect to those who play golf at that age, it's tough to compete on a 7,400 yard golf course I, against the best players in the world. I think more so it is um, to make sure that everyone's teams aren't the same because there's two, 300 people in the pool. And if you just let free reign pick any golfer you want, 197 of those people might have Dustin Johnson on their team. And then, you know, 186 might have, so you get a better variety when you make people dig a little bit, you know, there's guys like Daniel Berger, who, who I'll probably throw on my team, who's playing really well that are eligible Spieth. I mentioned trying to think I, I don't have a list up in front of me, nor does anyone probably really care about it. But with that being said, I would like your, uh, your pick to win the masters this week. I, I just think one. We're not gonna. We're not gonna put it. Well, put I mean, how many? Pick, the only one guy can win. So right, but I mean, you want to give your two or three favorites, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Give me your. Give me your three favorites. Spieth's definitely one. Okay. As you know, I'm a big Justin Thomas fan. Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth are boys. You're a Spieth guy. I'm more of a JT guy. Yeah. I would love to see Weird. JT win. Love to see JT win. I. I feel like Rory's going to do something. It's so uh, Rory is one of these guys that whenever you least expect it, right? It's it's when he walks in as the favorite, he plays bad. This this year, when he's not expected to do anything, I could see him come out and and light it up. Uh, so those are the three. Dark horse, who's <laughs> I think number two in the world. So that's such dark horse. But John Rahm mm. just had his wife just had a baby yesterday. And there was a thought he might not even be able to play in the Masters because his, his wife might go into labor in the middle of the tournament. They had the child early. I'm going to guess, you know, you know what it's like becoming a father, being on a high. Now you're playing the Masters. He might ride. He might ride that cloud. The announcers love it. Anytime a golfer has a baby or gets married, man, they they dig into that. So if you are watching the Masters this week, that could be a fun little game of how many times do the announcers. I think they just stopped mentioning Rory becoming a new father, and that was like a year ago. So uh, thank you to John Rahm for, for taking that mantle. Um, all right. So you said, uh, you said Rory, you said JT, you said Spieth. I will go with three different guys just for the sake of, of conversation, even though I do think Jordan is in, in prime time position. So I, if, if you made me pick one guy that I think is going to win it, unfortunately, it is Bryson DeChambeau. Uh, this is his second master since he's really beefed up and, you know, become Mr. 49 inch driver. I'm going to hit the ball 390 yards every time. So uh, as we know, you know, Augusta is a, uh, is a ball striker and short game course, but also I think Bryson learned a lot in the masters last year about how to play the golf course with his power. He's playing well right now. Bryson. Uh, second person, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go Patrick Cantlay. He just, he's, he's playing pretty well right now. Um, he's always just kind of lurking and, uh, and I think Cantlay is going to have a good week. I think he's going to be firmly in contention. And the third one, uh, this is another one. This, this is my other boy who, uh, who I know and love Victor Hovland. I think Vic's going to go and, and have himself played well there as an am, um, if I'm not mistaken, this is his first Masters as a professional. I don't think he played in the Masters last fall. Uh, I just, I think we're going to see some things from, from old Victor Hovland this week. So 
there you have it. But uh, my my winner, my predict, my projected winner is Bryce Mishamble. I haven't even looked at uh, uh, me, you, and Brett pick major winners at the beginning of every year. Need to go revisit that. I don't know who any of us had to win the Masters. I don't know if you you had that piece of information. I had it, I had it wrong. I think I picked JT last year too. That didn't go so well. I don't know. We'll find it. We'll find it eventually. All right. Uh, we do uh, owe it to March Madness to check in as well. Uh, it is. It puts us in a little awkward position, similar to when we talked about the national championship game. We're recording this podcast on Monday. Uh, sorry, the football national championship game. The game is being played tonight. The podcast is going to release on Wednesday. So either we will sound like geniuses or sound. We did, yeah, and we did with college football. If you we we it worked out for us for college football. Obviously, Gonzaga UCLA on Saturday night was an all-time just greatest Amazing. game of any sport that's ever been played. I think we we were due that game after you know you probably count on one hand the number of really exciting, fun finishes we've had in this entire tournament so far. And for that to to be the the penultimate game, podcast where the day penultimate, we really, you know, I think that that we deserved that game especially after the the trash heap that was the first game i mean cole cole connor just was relentless about talking to me about houston and just texting me and every time the podcast was, hey man what about houston hey don't forget about the cougs and then uh they go out and lay that stinker so i will not apologize cole thank you for coming and visiting our beautiful city here in indianapolis but uh that was rough to watch and then you follow it up with that ucla gonzaga game yeah, I, I am going to send condolences to to Cole uh, and Mattress Mac. Don't yeah, I mean don't it, about Mattress. Mac. You get he gets on a plane, he flies here, he gets to watch his school play in the Final Four, which I got to say that has to be a, a really really cool moment. You get all excited, right? And that game after about five minutes in was not even competitive, and so to have to sit there and watch your team get dismantled, I. I cannot imagine that uh, in terms of it being your own college. Now, I've lived that as you have in pro sports. Uh, I remember not not this playoff run, but the year before, my Braves, my Atlanta Braves, were uh, going to game five against the Cardinals, and we gave up, I think, 10 runs in the first inning. Let me tell you, that really makes you want to turn the television off and, and move on in final game of a playoff series. But uh, condolences to Cole. Cooks had a good year, final four run. Should be a great game tonight. Who you got? Gonzaga. Everyone's on Baylor. Everyone's on Baylor. And, and it's, it's a little ridiculous to me because UCLA played a perfect basketball game. I, you know, you always uh, hear people talk about, I was not privileged to be alive for this, but the 1985 national championship game, Villanova versus Georgetown. They always talk about how Villanova played a perfect game. They were an eight seed, I believe, and they beat Georgetown and Patrick Ewing they played a perfect game and that's what UCLA did. And they, they still lost and Gonzaga took every punch they had. You, uh, you just kept thinking Gonzaga is going to pull away. They're going to stretch the lead to seven. It's going to be nine. It's going to be 12. And it never happened. UCLA played so well and they have legitimate professional talent on that team and Gonzaga won. And now people are talking like, oh, they exposed all Gonzaga's weaknesses. Gonzaga's vulnerable, right? Baylor's a great shooting team. Baylor could easily win this game. But just because a team in the Final Four played a perfect basketball game to stay in contention against the team that everyone thought was great, it doesn't make the team that actually won the game any less great. So, yeah, I got Gonzaga by seven. I'll say seven. I just... 
I hope it's a really good game. I hope it's close. I think it will be a good game, but I also think Gonzaga is still the better team and, and nothing that happened on Saturday night disproved that to me. So you recall three months ago, maybe you do, maybe you don't. When Probably we had not. this discussion, we had this discussion about college football and the championship game. And oh, I yeah. said, and I said, Alabama is going to win big and Alabama won big. Yep. I'm leaning in again. I think Gonzaga 10, 10 points or more. I think that they, after hitting that shot, it's, it goes the other way of, of showing that I actually think they're going to be on a high of a team played us perfect. And we still, we're a team yep. of destiny. We've got Jalen Suggs, who's a superhero at this point. I think it could get sideways. That Timmy's guy, I got to tell you, I can't, I, it's going to be interesting watching him play in the NBA, but watching him play in college, that is one of the most entertaining things when he gets a dunk or a run out and he does the he, the mustache thing. And, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, that, I, I mean, it's just entertaining. So he's, it's almost like he's a wrestler. He's a big fan of himself. Right. That's what I mean. It's it's like wrestling. It takes me back to being a kid, right? You watch WWE, WWF, and, and all the antics and the things of the people, you know, thinking they're, they're hot stuff. So, uh Guy's entertaining. I, I heard him. He's, good, he's a great basketball player. I heard him referred to as a thrift shop Christian Leitner, which I thought was was pretty entertaining. As a Duke fan myself, um, I enjoyed that. Yeah, and I I agree. The other thing with Gonzaga is I think they'll come out a lot looser tonight because that you know if if you Gonzaga's got this uh, this stigma of they can't win the big game, they're mid major, right? They don't play anyone. We know all that's false, but. There's, there had to have been a little extra pressure of, oh, right, if we lose this game to an 11 seed, even though it's UCLA, even though they're a very good basketball team, we lose this game, like it's just the same old story, right? Everyone, it goes from Gonzaga's one of the best teams in the history of college basketball to, oh, Gonzaga can't win the big one. I think they'll come out tonight a little a little looser, a little more fired up and, and a little less on their heels. Whereas UCLA, of course, once they, essentially once they win their first game, the playing game against Michigan state, they're playing with house money. They're the underdog in every game they play. So, um, so I think you're going to see Gonzaga come out loose and, and ready to go, but I hope it's a good game. Uh, it doesn't tip till like 2 AM. So it's going to be a long night and uh, except for our West coast friends, but uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. All right, let's keep moving here uh, before we bring Zach in and our uh, very special guest for Barry Altland. I do want to want to move into rule of three real quick. So as we know, one of the uh, one of the most cherished ways, as we already talked about, to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is to gorge yourself with candy on Easter. I I would like to know from you, Donnie, what are your three favorite candies to eat? Number one, peanut butter M and M's. Or peanut M and M's, I should peanut say. Peanut M and M's, okay. Peanut M and M's, because you almost stole one of mine there, and I, yeah. I've never seen you eat a peanut butter M and M's. No, 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 peanut M and M's. Sorry, peanut M and M's. Two Snickers, three Kit Kat. Easy list. There isn't even a fourth. All right, that that was quick. I'm you. You had that ready to go. All right, for me, it is uh, peanut butter M and M's. As luck would have it, not peanut M and M's. Orange bag. Uh, I. I'll tell you what, I would challenge anyone out there listening to an eating competition with peanut butter M&Ms. I can smash some peanut butter M&Ms. Uh, number two, Almond Joy. I love coconut, and uh, and I just, I see the face you're making. Uh, it's not, you know, you're making that black licorice face. Almond Joy's number two. And then number three, this is, uh, this was not an Easter specific list, but this third one is Easter specific. Reese's peanut butter eggs are undefeated 
in all shapes and sizes, the little ones, the big ones, white chocolate, regular chocolate, Reese's peanut butter eggs. Um, and I'll give you a little bonus because this is not as well known right now. They're still kind of on the up and up, but Kinder Buenos, have you had a Kinder Bueno bar? Oh, those are, as the kids say, the Kinder Buenos slap. So uh, I am, a, I'm becoming a real big fan of, of Kinder Buenos and if, you, if you're listening and you haven't tried one, I'm sure you've seen them. They're on every grocery aisle, every checkout aisle, every shelf. You grab you one and you, you check it out. Let me know how it goes. All right, time to bring in Zachary Scott. We'll see what he's up to. Ask him about the Masters. Maybe ask him some other stuff. We'll see. Don't know if we'll have time. Good morning, Zach. Good morning. How are you? We're, we're doing pretty well. We're, we're, we're vibing pretty good this morning. Love to we're on high it. because it's Masters Week, A, because Jordan Spieth won yesterday, B, and because we're, we're coming off a, a fun family-filled Easter. How was your Easter? Did you eat some ham? I, I did, in fact, eat some ham. We, uh, uh, my mom had, had flown back in after visiting my brother over the weekend, and then uh, my dad and I hung out with some family friends for, for Easter. Got a little Easter egg hunting um, with the little ones, and it was, uh, it was a solid day. Very nice. Are you, are you, I've never seen you interact with a child. How do you do? Uh, pretty good. I mean, my mom was a kindergarten teacher my whole oh, okay. life. So growing up, I'd uh, volunteer quite a bit. So I, I, uh, I, I'm a big fan of kids. I'm not Nick Kimball. I was, um, so. that, that's, that was the, that was the genesis of the question was Frater Kimball, who I'm sure will be listening to this. He's getting better. I've been, we've been uh, training him up with my, my two little ones and trying to prepare him for his next phases of life. But uh, didn't know if you were in that same boat or if you were, uh, if you didn't, you know, act like someone asked you to hold a tarantula whenever you tried to try to give you a baby. No, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of kids. Um, I'll be, I'll be a great dad one day. I can't wait. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. I think Donnie had a question for you about golf. Yeah, so Al, Al started. Al started with the lead. You can see that I'm wearing green today for for Masters Week. Do you watch the Masters at any point? Yes, I, I do. I would have lost that bet. Yeah, we had a discussion on it, and, and Alex thought that you, Al, thought that you were someone who would never watch even a minute of. No, no, I'll watch. I'll watch. Uh, sometimes I watch the players. Um, the Masters every year. Um, every year, watch the Masters. So. Got to. Good for you. Good for you. We'll, we'll talk about it next week. Hopefully be coming off another Jordan Spieth win. <laughs> be something. Yeah. All right. On the, uh, on the Teak front, uh, if we must, we obviously talked to you a lot about recruitment. Uh, that is your area of expertise. I know another area that we're, we're getting into right now is actual initiation. And groups are having to go all over the board when it comes to initiating their new members, some virtual, some in person, some kind of both. What have you seen out there? You've been heavily involved with recruitment with a lot of chapters. What have you seen out there in terms of initiations themselves, how they're being conducted and, and any tips for chapters that might be struggling right now with how to wrap their brains around doing an initiation for their candidates in this current environment? Yeah, I think one of the big things is following the the local restrictions and guidelines, right? Socially distant, if Always. you need to be, right? Spacing. Yes, exactly. Spacing things out. Um, you can certainly find ways to, to maneuver the triangle around and all that stuff. So that's helpful. Um, but I think the big thing is just doing whatever guys are going to be most comfortable with. I think putting people into a situation where they feel that their their health is is the number one concern, um, but also finding a way to create a moment that these new initiates will 
remember for the rest of their life. You've already got some circumstances that I think will ensure that, but finding a way to make this the, the most important experience for them this school year, I think is, is critical. How can you do that without necessarily missing out on, on certain pieces maybe for that initiation and just finding ways to, to make it as normal as possible. I, I think, and if you're doing one virtually, I think it's just finding ways to, to keep it again, as similar to normal as possible, keep things flowing, rehearse, rehearse. That's, that's something that I know that you two are, are real big proponents for regardless of the pandemic is make sure that you're rehearsing constantly going through, make sure you have the equipment ahead of time. And again, I can't say it enough. Make sure that these guys have an experience worth remembering in a positive way. I think that's, that's, right. that's the big piece, right? Making sure that internet connection is stable if it's virtual. Um, and again, making sure that you're, you, you understand what needs to be said and follow through. Zach, where is the, is your favorite place that you have ever done ritual? Ooh, man. I don't know about favorite. I can, I, I can think of one that I'll, I'll never forget. Um, and then favorite one, probably conclave. I, I think that's, that's hard to beat, especially the most recent Orlando conclave. That one, that was just a really cool experience to, to be a part of and to see, especially being on staff. It's always interesting being at the conferences. So conclave, when you got hundreds of teaks gathered together, um, you're initiating new members into the fraternity and getting to, I mean, it's just such a cool experience when you have the grand officers conducting ritual. That's pretty awesome. If you guys want, I can share the one that I'll never forget. It's certainly not anything too bad by any means, but this was, I think when we redid the Texas chapter um, and maybe like 2017 or so, I, uh, I visited them that spring and they were initiating their three or four new members that they had gotten. And the group was really small at the time because we had just gutted it down to one. And we were gathering in an apartment complex for, uh, I think it was, maybe it was induction or maybe it was initiation. I can't remember which, but it was uh, it was certainly an interesting experience watching everybody maneuver around um, someone's coffee table. And we've got like chairs and couches kind of pulled up. And like, I'm talking like big leather chairs that Chris Niles type, um, type chairs that he sits in on our Zoom calls, those types of things. And it was... Uh, I couldn't help but smile because, right, you're bringing new guys in and it's unfortunate one on one side because, right, this is their first experience. But two, it's something, again, that you're never going to forget. And the first time I think it was induction because we talked about it afterwards of initiation being that much more important of how can we take it from this and we show that progression and we get even better. And now, I mean, that group is is doing great. They're still finding their way. Um but something that I, I will never forget, I, I, I got to say, that was a really fun experience. But the Conclave initiation, that nothing tops that. If anybody is listening, has a chance to make it out to the next Conclave, do it solely for that experience. Whenever you get that 600-person uh, we are witnesses, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's hard to beat right there. So Yeah, that's uh, it. I, that's, that's top teak right there. I agree. <laughs> that's good fraternity, as they say. It's good fraternity. <laughs> All right, Zachary. Well, we, we appreciate your time as always. Hopefully you uh, enjoy the, the, well, it's probably always beautiful weather. I'm just looking outside right now and I can't wait to, to get out of my kitchen and, and outdoors, but you don't have to worry about that because you live in Florida. So uh, good for you. We'll talk to you again next week. Sounds great. Take it easy, everyone. Enjoy the masters. Thanks, Zach. Zach Scott, masters fan. Who'd have thunk? Everybody, everybody's drawn. Everybody loves the map. Maybe, maybe, our, maybe our reach with this conversation is a little more broad than we previously expected. It was one of the few times I think you've underestimated something. Oh, I underestimate myself all the time.
and and the playing abilities of Jordan Spieth. Let's be honest. That's true. All right, want to move on now to our guest. This is, uh, I think, a really important conversation for us because it is National Volunteer Month, and uh, Teak really, there's no other way to put it, relies on the expertise and the time and the talent of its volunteers to continue to operate as a fraternity. So really excited to bring in somebody who can speak highly on not just Teak volunteering, but volunteering in general, Frater Barry Altland. Barry, thank you for joining us here today on the Teak Nation podcast. Glad to have you, my friend. Barry is a graduate of the University of Central Florida, part of the Xi Iota chapter. Um, he is a consultant, a speaker, a presenter, a facilitator. You do a little bit of everything, right, Barry? I, I don't know. How, I don't want to. I don't want to box you in. <laughs> I, I do. Yeah, I add nonprofit executive to that list, and uh, that pretty much covers it. All right, we got it all. We'll uh, make sure that that Garrett and the guys get that right for the uh, the Facebook post. So um, we brought Barry in today to talk about what it means to be a volunteer. He is someone who works intricately with volunteers, not just at the teak level, but at all levels. And as we think about what National Volunteer Month means to the organization and to all of us as individuals, thought he would be the right man to provide some insight and, and shine some light on some questions we had. So I will, uh, I'll jump right in just with your involvement first with, with Teakberry. You are someone who obviously joined Teak as an undergraduate. You went away for a little bit, at least from the, the international fraternity. First, my first five, six years on staff, I did not ever meet you and didn't know who you were with all due respect. Um, and then you appeared back on our radar for uh, as an RLC facilitator, and you've really been pretty closely intertwined ever since. So, so my question to you is, what was it that compelled you to make that jump back in two or three years ago to, to become back involved with the fraternity and give that time and that talent that you've given us? Yeah, you know, and, and it's a great question. And, uh, so frequently, the, the common answer that you hear when certainly when I've engaged with with peer frauders and have uh, asked that same question, we, we often talk about the uh, the calling or the give back. But uh, for me, it, it was that and uh, something more. And that something more is that uh, I I felt like there was opportunity for me to be able to apply my unique gifts in a way that was going to make a difference for young men. And uh, to me, that was the real intrigue. It, it had a little bit less to do with, uh, with who asked me or how they asked me. And it was a little bit more about the, the door, the, the door that was opening that allowed me to apply my gifts and, and hopefully make a positive impact. And I know back to that point, and, and I think just holistically saying, I want to volunteer more, I want to give back, I want to spend time volunteering for different organizations. That's something you probably hear a lot. It's something I think we've all thought in some capacity. It's one of the, it's a New Year's resolution a lot of times, like I want to lose weight or I want to eat healthier. And a lot of times that does not ever really manifest itself into volunteering and giving back. What are uh, from your experience, how do you direct people to take that energy that, hey, I want to give more, I want to give back, and actually put it into action and, and get moving in the right direction? 
Yeah, I think it's important that we preface this conversation with uh, something that that I feel might be one of the mis most misunderstood aspects of of leadership and and functioning within organizations, and it's this concept of of motivation. So uh, I, I'll simplify it. It's really really easy. There's only two types. And those two types, the first one is intrinsic motivation. That's the stuff that stirs in our souls, the things that, that are within our heart uh, that compel us to do those things that we choose to do every day of our lives. So we have intrinsic motivation, and then we have extrinsic motivation. The easiest way to understand that, Alex, is uh, extrinsic motivation is an effort made by somebody else outside of us to get us to do what they would like us to do. Not necessarily what we would like to do, but what they would like us to do. And it's really critical that leaders, especially our rising leaders, understand the difference between those two really simple concepts. Because I, I believe deeply and in no space more than in volunteerism is the power of intrinsic motivation uh, prevalent. That's really what comes to the top. But yet the, the go-to move for most of us when we attempt to engage uh, a volunteer is we, we attempt to pull extrinsic motivator levers. So I just want to preface all of uh, what we're going to talk about by just describing the two different types of motivation. So for a for a volunteer to really find something that's meaningful and this has been true in my life over and over and over again in fact it's what led me to to put these thoughts on paper in the form of a book is that there was somebody in a position that understood enough about me and my intrinsic motivation to be able to help me to get aligned with doing something that was going to be meaningful for me. And, and as, as self-centered as that may sound, uh, that is the key to being able to really engage a volunteer is once you get them doing something that's feeding them, feeding their heart in some way, you've got them hooked. And, uh, and it's really, you, you don't wrestle with things like burnout and some of those other challenges that we often hear talked about in the volunteer space because uh, we have them aligned with something that's feeding their soul in a really meaningful way. And so it, it seems like what you're saying is if I, as an individual, want to get more involved as a volunteer, again, be it with Teak, be it with the Humane Society, whatever that is, that I need to look first at myself, find something that I'm passionate about that doesn't feel like work, that's not going to drag me down, and then pursue that rather than just finding, right, finding a food bank on paper that might look good, but that might not give me that intrinsic level of motivation. Uh, Alex, you nailed it uh, exactly the way that you just described it. And it does really need to begin from within. So I think that it's a challenge for all of us, no matter where we are in our journey. If you're thinking about getting more involved in your community, no matter what that community is, no matter how you define it, that you first have to start within. Start thinking about, well, what are my gifts? What am I good at? What do I want to do? What do I like to do? What do I like to do that maybe has nothing to do with my professional? life because we often will make that assumption is like oh you you work in a bank you're going to be our treasurer for our organization we sometimes will make that mistake uh and and maybe maybe that volunteer 
doesn't want to do anything that has to do with what their professional pursuits are. So, so yes, we, we must start from, from within, but then we also have to be willing to have those meaningful conversations. And that's between the leader, the representative of the organization and those individual volunteers, because we're all wired differently. Uh, we all have uh, things, I call it a cocktail. It's a unique cocktail that stirs within us that, uh, that defines who we are. And it's only when that representative of the organization finds that out, when they ask the right questions to discover what's going on in here, and then help that volunteer get aligned with doing something that uh, will bring them that meaning and fulfillment, then you got something really good happening. Barry, I'm curious, when you when you look for volunteers, especially with the organizations you've been a part of, what are some of the traits you're looking for? Obviously, this, this aspect about value and what is going to internally motivate them. I, I'm also interested a little bit in the questions that, that you want to ask those folks, because I think for some of our other volunteers listening or even some of our collegiate leaders, they're going to think of the simple, just walk up and ask them. I'm going to guess it. I'm going to guess it's a little more. Uh, there's a little more layers than, than simply that. But I am curious, what traits are you looking for as someone who is who just like us is, is trying to engage volunteers? Yeah. So uh, so the questions part, uh, there is uh, an art and a science to asking brilliantly crafted open ended questions. And that's really what it comes down to is, you know, and, and I think it's a it's a skill for leaders at all levels in any type of organization is how do you just ask an open ended question and then learn how to just shut up? Just stop talking and, and listen, listen to the, the meaningful uh, feedback, the answers that you get from somebody when you start to scratch below the surface and get into those layers and find out what's, what's cooking inside of them. So uh, the open-ended questions part, that's, that's key. As far as the qualities for a volunteer, uh, you know, I do believe that anybody who has a propensity to serve, uh, they, they carry a few essentials in common with each other, and that is passion. They care about something. I think that we all care about something. Uh, the, yeah, sometimes you'll hear, like, well, that person's just not motivated. Well, that's not actually an accurate statement. They are motivated. They just may not be motivated about what it is that you would like them to be motivated about. So for me, it's the volunteers, they, they carry that passion. It's already there. It's inherent inside of them. It's our responsibility from the organization side to figure out what it is and then get it lined up with, with doing something that feeds that passion. So when you think about traits and characteristics, I do believe for volunteers, they all bring something good with them. We just need to tap into it and figure out what it is. I should have, and you mentioned this, I should have added published author to your uh, your list of credentials up front. Barry has uh, written a book, as he mentioned, Engaging the Head, Heart, and Hands of a Volunteer. Um, you know, I, I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about what what the thought process was behind creating that that book and, and writing a book. I know, again, it's one of those things that a lot of people probably say, and then very few people actually do so the process itself and and what did you learn about yourself what did you learn about the volunteers that you work with as you went through the process of of creating the book and getting it out there 
Yeah, you know, I, I don't come from a nonprofit background. I, I have now landed in the in the nonprofit space, but I actually come from a corporate background. I was doing corporate learning and, and organizational development for years. And, and as I was, I was also volunteering. I have a heart for service. I like to say yes. I like to get involved. Uh, I'm not a good sideline sitter. Uh, so I really like to get in the game. And, and as I was doing this throughout my, my more mature life, my 30s and into my 40s, uh, I was having a consistent experience. Uh, and that consistent experience was that I was at times stumbling upon some really crappy volunteer experiences. And uh, that intrigued me because it, it was a, a, a pattern that was repeating itself. I would go into a new opportunity, jazzed, excited, ready to dive in. Uh, and then somewhere along the way, something would go awry that would make me feel like, hey, this, this isn't what I signed up for. Uh, and then, as, as LeBron said years ago, uh, I took my talents elsewhere. I would just choose not to be involved with that organization any longer. Uh, and as I, as I observed that pattern of behavior, I, I really wanted to assess it. I became intrigued to answer it. And as I did, what came out of it was really the genesis for the writing that I did in the book. And, and it is helping leaders to understand this concept of intrinsic motivation and how powerful it is. Uh, and then also to help leaders to equip them with some really simple tools that uh, they can apply that can help them to just tap into those intrinsic motivation motivators that already exist within all of those people around us. So the genesis of the book was not so good volunteer experiences and, and my experience as as a corporate learning and development practitioner thinking, hey, these leaders, they could use some help. And maybe, just maybe with all the tools and the models that I had been developing in my corporate life, maybe putting all of these together could be helpful to leaders of volunteers so that they really understand how to capture and engage the heart of a volunteer. Curious, Barry, on the, on the other end of that, hopefully hopefully, there's a, lot, a number of good stories as I ask this question, but. What is a what's a good story that you have in volunteering with the fraternity and getting back engaged? A story that that has filled your bucket and, and brought you to to go home and say, "I'm glad that I'm engaging in volunteering with the fraternity." Yeah, uh, I got to tell you, my RLC experiences, and and again, we talk about gifting and being able to apply your gifts. It's the perfect example for me because uh, I I love to facilitate. I love to draw other voices into meaningful conversations, and and I've been given those opportunities at uh, at two different RLCs now. And I have deeply enjoyed that experience because I felt uh, I do get to work with a lot of young people in different aspects of my professional life. But uh, being able to work with that college age student is something that otherwise eludes me in my circle. So at 54, I'm not quite sure if I'm relevant or cool in the eyes of a 20 year old, but being able to connect with these young men, uh, so much so that they're connecting with me, actively choosing to connect with me on social media, and uh, they're reaching back to me to maintain a connection even after that weekend is incredibly enriching. 
and fulfilling for me. So again, it's about taking my gifts, the things that I, I'm naturally good at, and being able to apply them on behalf of my beloved fraternity uh, to be able to make an impact on others. So we take all of those things. And uh, I tell you, I, I came away from those Atlanta weekends uh, with a really warm feeling because I got to do something good and I got to do it uh, in a way that I, I knew I was, I was doing it well. So yeah, it was a really blessed opportunity for me. I, I love for you to elaborate a little on that because that's not really something that I had thought about as we prepared for this conversation is most of your professional life is working with older volunteers, working with people established in their lives and their careers. And when, when we ask you to be a part of that RLC team, you're really focused on 18 to 22 year olds. What mindset shifts do you have to make? Is it the same mindset and you just kind of tweak a, a few things? Are you, you know, downloading TikTok and trying to, trying to put yourself in the, uh, in the shoes of today's, today's youths? Um, what, you know, how do you prep for that as opposed to how you might prep for a career conference or professional conference? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And uh, again, I do work a lot with adults, but also just that little known fact in my professional life, I do lead a summer internship for 16 to 18 year olds every summer. So I do get to engage with a lot of young people and do so over an extended period of time so that I'm able to establish relationship with them. And uh, here's one thing that I have discussed and, and I've worked with young children, and I say young children could be even preschool age, on through uh, seniors and seasoned adults. And facilitation skills transcend all of humanity. So if you master how to draw other, people's, uh, other people into a conversation, you can use that skill from young children to, to seasoned adults, to seniors. And, and to me, that's really what it came down to is it doesn't matter so much what I say when I'm interacting with our, our, uh, our collegiate frauders, uh, it matters what I ask because ultimately I'm letting them drive the conversation and I'm applying facilitation skills to just draw them into that meaningful dialogue, that interaction. And, and that's when the beauty begins to unfold because uh, I don't need to, to look at TikTok to figure out what's stirring in the heart of a young man. We were all once young men and, uh, and that's not evolved quite so far from where I was 30 years ago. So for me, it was about letting them drive the conversation and me just gently guiding it along. And, uh, and to me, there was real fulfillment in doing that. You've talked a lot about facilitation skills, Barry. I'm, I wonder when it comes to facilitation skills, where did you learn them? Because for Alex and I, and, and you know, this, we've been involved with programs most of our career in the fraternity facilitation is a difficult task for most people. People think it's very easy when they watch someone do it, but the actual art of doing it and the science of doing it, it's a, it's a whole different level. Can you talk about how you grew your facilitation skills? What drew you to it? What, what fills your bucket on it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I came from an optical background earlier in my career in a hospitality side. And when I was with one of the major theme parks here in Central Florida, I was offered an opportunity to transition under the HR umbrella and move into the learning and development department. 
And it was there that I was uh, able to work under the wing of a mentor and she was tough on me. She was really tough, but yet she set a pretty high expectation for what real facilitation should look like. So I was blessed to be able to learn from somebody who really understood that skill set. Uh, and coming from an operations background where I was kind of a hotshot leader and uh, I, I had a pretty firm grasp on what I did, I entered a new space where I was a novice and I was learning a new skill set and I took that as a challenge. I took it as a challenge to be able to master that skill. And uh, I, I will say that I think anybody can learn to be an effective facilitator, but you have to do two things. One is you have to break down our traditional notions of how learning happens because we tend to be very tell oriented. And instead you have to flip that model around and embrace that, that anything that I can say to somebody, if I learn how to craft artful open-ended questions, I can get them to say what I would have said. And to me, that is the essence of facilitation is once I can craft that open-ended question to get them to carry the learning, imagine how much more impactful it is when we get to hear a peer who's sitting next to us in a learning group share something instead of having a, an instructor say it in a traditional and didactic way. So again, we have to embrace this idea of stepping away from talking at people and instead uh, let them take as much as 50% or more of the airtime in a conversation. Once you get comfortable with those concepts and you master open-ended questions, and then you just, you just sit back and watch the conversation unfold. So for me, that was my journey is I had a tough mentor who, who set some pretty high expectations. I took it as a challenge to really become good at being a facilitator. And then I learned the mechanics of it. And those mechanics include philosophies that you just have to embrace. You're not the show. You're not the center of, of the attention. In fact, the learning and the engagement is the center of attention. You have to embrace that and facilitation will come to you. I agree. Asking great questions, absolutely critical. The other piece that we, we talk about internally, I'd love for you to expound upon is being a great listener. You, you mentioned it there. A lot of people on this planet, they, they just listen to respond instead of listening to actually take it, digest it, and then turn around and move the conversation to your point, right? And to get folks in, maybe into a place they might even have been comfortable or thought they were ever going to go in that, in that session. Yeah, I listen to build. Uh, and again, I, I look for and listen for those opportunities in those exchanges to be able to, to take learning deeper to a richer place. And, and for me, that's the key. You're right on it, is that listening is a key part. Often when we describe communication, we assume that it's, it's the talking part. Uh, but if you look at any communication model that has been uh, delivered by researchers, they'll tell you that listening is more than 50% of the model. So being able to embrace listening, but I listen to build. In a facilitated conversation, it's grabbing those nuggets as they come out and say, Tell me more about that. I, I see you're actually using this technique on me right now. I'm picking up on it, but, uh, and I'm grateful. I'm grateful that you are because that is how really rich and meaningful learning happens. Moving back to the, the volunteer conversation. I know a lot of our listeners are 
alumni. They are volunteers themselves, but they're volunteers who really want more people involved in Teak and they're individuals who, who want to get, whether it's graduating seniors or 50, 60, 70 year old frauders who have been away from the fraternity. What are a couple tips you might give someone listening who's, who's looking to add people to their volunteer team, looking to branch out and, and get more individuals involved? I know you talked a lot about the motivations and tapping into that, but if I'm going out and, and I want to find three more people to, to volunteer for Teak Chapters, right? What are, what are you going to tell me to go do to get that process started? Yeah, well, one is, and I don't want to gloss over that motivation part yep. because that is mission essential that any leader, especially if they're seeking to attract others to serve, that they have to really gain a deep understanding of what that means, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. After that, uh, I believe that, uh, and again, no matter where we are in our journey, we, we likely carry uh, some notions of what once worked or what we thought once worked when even when we were being attracted to, to become a part of TEAG. And uh, I, I would suggest that we let those things go and, and instead get to a place where you, you know, if you're a coffee drinker, I always think that uh, a coffee conversation is a great way to begin the attraction process. Notice that I don't talk about recruitment because for me, recruitment is more transactional. Attraction to me goes a little bit deeper. It's about finding out. It's the discovery process of finding out what's going on in here. And, and for me, that's what we need to get better at doing if we are seeking to get others to be attracted to serve through TEAG. It's let's sit down, let's have a meaningful conversation with them. Let's, let's share a cup of coffee and, uh, and just talk. Let's not throw job titles and let's not make assumptions about what it is that's going to, to fill their bucket, as Donnie had said. Uh, let's not make those assumptions. Hey, you know, we often will do that. Well, we'll pitch the laundry list of all the benefits that we think they're going to gain by getting more actively engaged. And instead of guessing, why don't we just take the time to ask them? And, and those simple open-ended questions could be really as linear as, so what's important to you? What would you like to get out of your experience? Uh, what, what's an area where you'd like to grow? Now, even though he's in their 40s, 50s, 60s, I bet that they still might have some, some thoughts about areas where they would like to continue to develop and grow and become more aware. Ask those meaningful questions and then just stop talking and listen. Because as we listen to those potential volunteers, we might get the insights. We would hope if we're asking those good questions, we get the insights that we need to get them lined up with doing something that's going to bring meaning to them. Bring, bring meaning to them may not be filling the role or the title that you are seeking to fill at this moment. And we have to get comfortable with that. It's okay to have two people in one job title if they're both being fulfilled in that process while another role sits empty. Again, different ways of thinking about this, but as we're entering into those meaningful conversations, uh, just ponder, ponder how that shift in thinking can benefit Teak and benefit us and our long-term goals. Something came to my mind here, Barry, as we're having this conversation about bringing volunteers on board. And I think it's an important item to address because we don't have this conversation very often, but you're an expert. How do you handle when it's time for someone not to volunteer anymore? 
right? We've all been, well, not, not all of us. You and I have been there. I think Alex has been there, right? So and I don't want to put that, that label on all everyone listening, but there are times where the volunteer, it's not working, right? For the volunteer, it's not working for the organization. And so if we have volunteers out there who are listening, maybe they're province advisors or grand province advisors, right? And they're in this situation listening, dying for an expert to reach out and, and just communicate, how do I have that conversation? Have you, have you engaged in that at all in your career? Yeah, uh, when I started writing, uh, I had a number of people who asked me this straightforward question. Are you going to write about how to fire a volunteer? And my answer for the first several times I heard that question was no. But then after I continued to hear it, I, I realized that I had to entertain it. But of course, as I do with many topics, I chose to take a view that is divergent from the standard or the traditional approach. And, and I love that you're asking this, Donnie, because it's really important that leaders, uh, if you're in a role of influence or if you're in a decision-making role, say part of that decision about whether you would part ways with a volunteer, that's the specific term that I use, is that you may be working toward parting ways with that volunteer. What have you done along that volunteer's journey to help to guide them and redirect them. It is rare when this circumstance magically appears out of nowhere, where you have this situation like, no, we just need to get rid of this person. That rarely happens uh, all of a sudden. It usually happens over time. And, and I would suggest, just as my, my writing, uh, when I finally did tackle this chapter in the book, was that there are many, many things that the leader should be doing all along that volunteer's journey in the hopes of, of guiding them back onto the path, or at least providing them meaningful feedback on their performance to let them know where they're performing well. And, and maybe they have some areas to grow and improve and continuing to shape their performance so that we can avoid at all costs getting to that point where we have to say, hey, this isn't working out anymore. Uh, so, so the easy answer is yeah, you're looking for a magic bullet from an expert to be able to say, here's how you do it. The, the, the more difficult and real answer is that as leaders in an organization, we have to embrace that it's our responsibility to guide and shape their performance all throughout their volunteer journey and, and then be ready to have the courageous conversation should should it arise, but only after you've had multiple other conversations and interactions that have given that person every opportunity to be able to shape their performance and behavior so that it aligns with the mission of the organization. And let me just add one more thought on that because you don't have to like the people who you're volunteering with. That there is no guarantee that you have to like them. I do believe you must respect them as a frauder and as a person who is choosing to offer their time and their talents. You do not have to like them, but you must filter the difference between your personal dislike and whether they're performing in a way that does not align with the mission of the organization. That's the key right there. Absolutely. The other piece that I would touch on is many times the volunteer hasn't been given fair expectations or even shared expectations at all, right? They're, you, you, as you talked about, you interview them you, and they do get pinned into positions possibly that they didn't even have a deep interest in, but they wanted to serve badly and, and help, but they weren't clearly given expectations or to, to the other point that you made, 
there wasn't follow-up and check-ins, right? When, when we have employees, we think clearly, of course, we've got to have quarterly check-ins or, or mid-year check-ins or annual check-ins. But with volunteers too many times, we they're out on an island, right? Or they're out floating and there's not a lot of that constant touch to make sure, do they have the, the, ex, do they have the expectations? Do they have the resources they need? Do they have a clear team that they're a part of or a communication vehicle, right? Are we getting feedback on how we're doing in leading that volunteer? So absolutely love you you touching on that topic because too many times it's it's a lot easier to to cut bait or to to end that relationship and move on to someone else versus did you put in the time and effort on your end to make sure that person could be successful because your point it is rare it does happen but it is rare that someone is just a complete ill fit most times you could even redirect them to another area and they could they could flourish right if they're given the right expectations the right resources the right culture and environment yeah, and, and Donnie, I, I'm, I'm going to date myself as I make this reference, but I use it often uh, just to stratify learners uh, because I talk about Ron Popeil. So some of you know who Ron Popeil is, and one of his catchphrases when he used to be on TV all the time is, set it and forget it. And that's the, that's the mindset that we would often take with a volunteer, is that we just assume, hey, they're good to go. We got them in a place, uh, you know, just you know, set them, set them loose. And, and we rarely do those check-ins or what I call coaching conversations in my, uh, in my book, where it's really just sitting down and just having a meaningful chat and doing so on a regular basis. So you do it at the beginning, but you don't stop there. You continue to have those meaningful conversations throughout the, the lifeline of, of that volunteer's journey. Barry, I am a huge Ron Popeil set and forget it rotisserie cooker fan. I've never owned one, but I have watched that infomercial numerous times throughout the course of my, my life. So I appreciate you bringing that into the fold. Um, my last question for you is much more from a, a macro level. And that is when I'm sure that you would advocate for everyone out there to volunteer in some capacity, whether it's for Teak, for St. Jude, for their church, whatever that is. But why do you feel volunteering is such an important part of the human experience, such an important part of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, of, of growth and development? What is it about giving back to an organization selflessly for no money, right, that, that in, enhances your experience as a human being on earth? Yeah, so if any of us are blessed to be able to pay our bills uh, by doing something that brings us complete fulfillment. Uh, good for you. That's fantastic. Uh, I, I tell you, throughout my career, I've gotten closer and closer to it, but uh, I, I'm not sure if it entirely exists. And if it does, you know, good for those who find it. So I do believe that choosing to serve as a volunteer allows us to, to become enriched in a way that, that very little else can, can provide to us in our lives. So again, all these things that I've been talking about are intrinsic motivators, our gifts, our experience level, our skills, uh, our knowledge, all of those things that come together that make us uniquely us. When we are able to take those and apply them for the benefit of others. And, and you know, I, I'm getting into a spiritual level here, but I believe that that's what we're called to do in this life. 
And I think that volunteerism, serving in our communities, no matter what that community is, offers this opportunity. So you have to be tuned in to what's going on inside of you. You have to be self-aware enough to know what really stirs your passions, uh, as well as being able to do something where you can actually make a difference. And you pull all of that together. And suddenly, you're beginning to, to pull all of those levers. Uh, lev levers. You're, you're hitting all of those points, and you get to walk away from those experiences with something that feels really good in the heart. Well, I think that's a, that's a fantastic note to end on and, and certainly appreciate your wisdom and your insight on, on all things volunteering and a little bit of facilitation coaching sprinkled in there as well. Um, but yeah, we, we just want to thank you again, Barry, for, for your time here. Um, any closing thoughts that you would, uh, would like to leave us with? Hey, you know, whether it's serving through Teak or, or whatever you choose to do, give some thought. Give some thought to what we talked about and really look within and, and figure out what is going to bring you that meaning. For me, uh, Teak just happens to be one of those, uh, those service opportunities that has brought me this enrichment, and I'm grateful. Awesome. Well, thank you, Barry. Really appreciate it, and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you, Barry. Thank you. And we just want to thank Barry one more time for his time, for his energy, and for his expertise. Truly uh, somebody who, when we say expert, he is an expert in this realm. So if you are thinking about volunteering, whether it's for Teak, whether it's elsewhere, I know Barry would be happy to serve as a resource. Um, and he himself can provide a lot of really good resources on that topic as well. It just highlights how lucky we are to have men like Barry in the fraternity. It doesn't matter what topic area we want to get into or what profession we want to get into. The, the phenomenal piece about this organization is we can find an expert somewhere because That's we are right. so broad and so diverse and have so many phenomenal people all across Teak Nation. Yeah. Thanks, and, Barry. And we're going to bring in, bring in a couple of volunteers later this month as well. Um, some guys who have given a ton of time to this fraternity and, and just ask them to speak a little more about their experience specific to Teak and, and specific to their roles. So looking forward to that as well. One other Teak note, I think we mentioned this last week, but we are still uh, taking resumes, applications for positions on our staff. So if that's something that you yourself are interested in or something that someone you know might be interested in, we have this week to get those applications in. I believe April 12th is the deadline. Um, go check it out, teak.org slash careers. We've talked a lot previously about what it's like to work on staff, what it means to be a part of, of the professional staff and all of the important skills that you gain. So uh, definitely want to make sure we continue to promote that and highlight that and we can get the word out to as many men as possible, whether it's a graduating senior, whether it's somebody who's been on a college for five years. Uh, we want the, the best people applying for this job and Hopefully, we'll be excited to share in, in a month or two that we've added some new men to this staff. Maybe we'll bring them on the podcast. Give them a little, uh, that would be, actually, let's work into the interview process. I, I want to, I think that's how we, uh, we start to weed out some of the bad eggs, is, is just throw them on the pod and see what they can do for us. Might increase listenership, too. Just folks who, in general, want to watch people get interviewed. Well, I don't even, I, we don't have to do the job interview on the podcast. We just ask them to talk about whatever they want and just... Just see how they respond. It's a high stakes situation. It's, it's, as high, it's as high as the stakes get. Anything else that we need to touch? We have covered a wide array of topics in the last 40 minutes. 
Well, let's have a let's have a great Masters week, everybody. Enjoy, and hopefully the weather is as good where you are as it is here in the Midwest. That's right. I'm sure we will uh, recap Masters next week. I'm sure, we will revisit our predictions for the national championship game unless Baylor wins, and then we'll just ignore our predictions entirely. Um, and and looking forward to, to keeping it rolling here through the spring. As always, thank you for listening. Please subscribe, like you know, just smash it, smash it as hard as you can, the like button, no mercy on your keyboard. Uh, make sure that you are the first to know when the next episode of the Teak Nation podcast drops, which will probably be next Wednesday. Thank you for listening. Thank you for, uh, for being a part of this family. And we will talk to you again very soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.